You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. So I'm going to open it up for questions in a moment. But first, I definitely had something has been kind of on my mind that I want to talk to everyone about. The first thing that I want to pose is a question for everyone. And this is the question of, do you think that yoga really is for everyone? Right? And this is a question because now it's very popular to say yoga is for everyone, yoga is for everyone, we have to make yoga for everyone. And I, I, I believe in making the, the, and I should say personally, I believe in making the practice accessible in terms of the physical asanas. But there's a secondary question which I think is worth considering. Is yoga really for everyone? You know? And if it is for everyone, how can we make it for everyone? And if it's not for everyone, who is yoga for? And this is something to really sit with and think about. And I'm going to pose that as a question, because if we take a look at the beginning of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, we have um, the first sutra, which says, Atta Yoga Anushasanam. Well, you probably know the translation of what this means. Normally, this is translated as, now begins the practice of yoga, or now yoga starts. But included in this word, Atta, is the notion of spiritual readiness on the part of the student. And another kind of more poetic translation of Atta Yoga Anushasanam could be, now, dear student, now that you're ready, now we can begin. So I think maybe you can kind of get the sense that I think maybe not everyone is essentially ready to do the practice of yoga. You know, so maybe yoga isn't for everyone, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't make the postures accessible for everyone who wants to practice. But is yoga for everyone? Which means a question Who's going to get up in the morning and do the practice? Are you going to get up in the morning and do the practice? Because yoga is hard, you know? Are you going to get up in the morning and face your failure and face what you can't do and face your injuries and face your body and all your thoughts in your mind? Who's going to do that? That student. We should do everything we can to make the asanas accessible for that student. Absolutely. But who is not going to do that? Who's going to come to one class and say, eh, you know what? This was too hard. I don't like it. There's, you know, there's, it's too difficult. It's too demanding. I have to do all this stuff that I can't do on the first try. I'm bad at it. Forget it. It's too difficult. That student, yoga is not for them. You know, it's reality. It's not for them. It's not for that student. So the question is not, how can we make yoga accessible for everyone? Because I think every teacher of yoga is very happy to make an adjustment to all the asanas for the student who's willing to show up and do the work. Whether that work is in a chair, whether that work is with blocks and bolsters, whether that work is just with a yoga mat. I don't know any teacher of any method that's not willing to teach the student who shows up. But who is yoga really for? It's for the one who wants it, the one who's willing to put in the work. If we think about the generations of yogis that have come before us, think about, you know, thousands of generations of yogis in India practicing yoga, but not only practicing yoga, safeguarding the sacred knowledge of the yoga tradition. So we think about that. Was that easy? No, you know, because the yoga philosophy was contained in a primarily oral tradition for thousands of years. So how was this passed on from one generation to another through memorization and chanting? 
Now, I don't know about you. Have you ever tried to memorize one of these sacred yoga texts and chant it in Sanskrit? How many people think that's more difficult than asana? Everybody, right? I think everybody agrees. Even to memorize some text in your native language, this I think is maybe also more difficult than asana. Just think of some book this big and say, commit this to memory. How long will that take you? The rest of your whole life. You know, and then we sit there and think, oh no. But we have to understand that this was the demand placed on those individuals who are the keepers of the knowledge of yoga for thousands of generations. And without their hard work and their showing up and their willingness to put in the work, we wouldn't have the practice today. So those students who are willing to show up and put in the work, that's who yoga's for. And then in terms of what capabilities you have with the body, that's secondary. Who cares if you're doing it on a chair or with a block or a bolster? This is not important. It's important that you're willing to get on the mat or the chair or the cushion in some form or another. Which student is going to show up every day to do the very, very difficult work of tapas? Silvana, I've locked the door because I want people to use the, the back stairs because it's distracting for me when they come in to the left. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, it's extremely distracting from here. Yes, so they can use the back stairs. We have two entrances. This was my idea. I've told everyone outside as well. Okay. So when we think about who yoga is for, we can't just jump on some trendy train and say, yes, now yoga is for everyone. Yoga is for everyone. Look, it would be great if the whole planet was practicing yoga, for sure. It would also be great if there was no war on this planet, if there was no poverty on this planet, if there was no pain, no suffering, no inequality, no disease. Definitely at this point, it would be great if there was no disease on this planet, right? But this is not the planet we live on. There are some people that are willing to show up and put in the work. And there are some people that they're not there yet in their spiritual journey. Maybe they will be one day. And then maybe at that moment, yoga is for them. You know, it's almost like not everybody is going to climb Mount Everest. I'm certainly not going to climb Mount Everest in this lifetime. I'm not a very good hiker. I kind of need it to be very flat with no snow. So it's never like, that's just not within my, I'm not ready for that. It's not for me, you know, but if I wanted to, and I had certain limitations that made it hard, I would hope that everybody who was involved in that climbing community would make it possible to do it to the best of my ability. And that's the way yoga ideally works. It takes more than the teacher saying, here, try it with the block. Here, try it with the chair. Here, try it like this. Hey, here, this body can do yoga too. Hey, this is happening too. It takes the student being willing to show up and put in the work. So the question that every student needs to ask is not, is yoga for everyone? The question that the student needs to ask is, is yoga for me? And then if you answer yes, then that requires a certain responsibility because you can't say yoga is for me and then quit. You can't say yoga is for me and then when going gets difficult, when you have injuries, when you have hardship and struggle, when for some reason you move far away from your teacher and you have to practice by yourself, you can't say, oh, well, I quit now. Now it's too difficult. Once you say yoga is for me, then the responsibility of all of the ancestors of yoga sits with you because now you're the link in the chain from thousands of generations of people who've shown up and put in the work. This is why traditionally it's said that, that Atta Yoga Anushasanam is really has the deep meaning of the practice of yoga. And there are all of these ancient stories about the teachers of yoga making it really difficult for the students to practice because 
The idea is, hey, if the student can accept this basic hardship, this basic difficulty, this difficulty, that difficulty, then when they're really asked to face the difficult lessons of the practice of yoga, then they're going to quit. Then what? All it takes is one generation of a lazy student, one generation of lack of inspiration student, and then the whole tradition of yoga, gone. You know, then suddenly we've lost the, we've lost the teaching. Somebody forgot half of the yoga sutras, then we don't have it anymore. So remember this foundational text of the yoga sutras was passed on in an oral tradition from teacher to student for approximately 500 years before it was written down on a piece of paper. So we think about that. That's incredible. It's astounding. Think of the dedication that it takes to learn and memorize all four books of the Yoga Sutras, nearly 200 sayings or aphorisms, 200 small shlokas that come, uh, you know, uh, some are not so small, but, you know, relatively small. Uh, but so 200 of these sutras that are there, and then you have to memorize that. For 500 years, this sacred knowledge was protected by these students until finally someone wrote it down. All of the sacred teachings from the spiritual tradition of India have been passed on like this with great responsibility from one generation to the next. The entire catalog of what we could call, what we call the, the teaching of the Vedas, the Upanishads and the Vedas were passed on as an oral tradition. There are people who will wake up in the morning in India and also in the, in the Desi community worldwide who will wake up in the morning and chant the entire Bhagavad Gita first thing in the morning. Who is willing to do that? You know, whether someone does asana or not, this is preserving the sacred knowledge that comes with the spiritual practice. So it is one thing to do asana when it looks cool. You know, looks kind of cool. Honestly, it does. You know, if you never saw an asana in your life and you just walked around and suddenly you saw a picture of an asana, it looked kind of cool. That's how I walked into my first yoga class. I was in a gym and there were a bunch of people behind a glass door doing things, which I thought, to be honest with you, looked cool. Number one was headstand. That looked very exciting. It was unlike anything that I had ever seen in an aerobics class. I was going to the gym to take aerobics classes. You know, do they still have those in gyms? Aerobics, do people still do that? They jump around, you know? So then I had been there to take some aerobics class and I left the class and a new class went in, a giant glass window. And then I looked in and then suddenly everybody was standing on their head. This was cool looking. So this is honestly what brought me to my first yoga class. This is not a bad reason to take your first yoga class. But what keeps you practicing when you answer the question, yoga is for me, you have to be willing to go deeper than that. Because if it's only going to be what's cool, sooner or later, even those postures which are cool that you can naturally do, sooner or later you won't be able to do them. Maybe there's an injury that happens from your yoga practice or more common from life. You know, life is injurious in case you haven't noticed. You know, you trip up and down the stairs, you fall off the bicycle, uh, you know, accidents happen all of the time. So then we come back to the yoga practice for one reason or another. Maybe we took a long break from the practice and we come back and we realize, oh, what I could once do, I can no longer do. Mm. There has been a, a serious decline in my ability to do the cool asanas. Then the question is, will you keep practicing then? Will you keep practicing? Will you keep practicing? Is yoga still for you after the horizon of everything that is new and exciting? Will you still keep practicing when what lies ahead is only struggle and only difficulty? Will you keep going through that valley? Because if not, then this teaching 
you know, could get lost. It's up to you, you know. Uh, all of the, the it, it, it seems to me that we are in a, almost like a generational shift in the teaching of the knowledge of yoga. We have to think that for thousands of years, this knowledge was contained within India and was not very widely shared worldwide. But now, the knowledge, this sacred knowledge of these ancient texts and this ancient timeless teaching is being shared worldwide. But at what cost and at what gain? At the cost that perhaps it could go down the drain. And at the gain that perhaps more people who answer the call, yes, yoga is for me, are willing to show up in practice. But who will answer that call? And how will that knowledge be preserved for the next generation? It's so easy to take it for granted and to think, okay, well, this is just a workout. I feel really good. And so it's just stretching and lifting and reduce the teaching of yoga to some physical benefit that is attained from the asana. But again, this is not the sacred teaching of yoga. Asana is one, but not the only tool that is utilized in the spiritual journey of yoga. What is the purpose of asana? What do you think? You know, just to take some trophies and say, who is the best asana of them all? Absolutely not. This is what David Swenson calls making an asana out of yourself, right? We add another S to it, and then it becomes to be, you know, a little, uh, like a trick that we can get caught in. If you stop at what you could call the way station, or understand what a way station is, if you're on a journey, then you stop and make a pit stop, right? So then you, you make a pit stop at what's called a way station. And this is like, you know, if you're driving from, you know, Miami to New York City, you can't do it in one go. So you have to make little pit stops, little way stations along the way. Sometimes you stop at different cities or different little road stops. And asana sometimes gets to be a way station that we get stuck at. So some people get stuck in asana and think that the entire teaching of yoga is just about asana. And asana is one of the tools that we utilize, but it is not the only tool. So if you answer the question, yoga is for me, it's a calling to go beyond the asana. What is the asana for? You know, we think, what is asana for? How are you going to use that tool? So we have this paradigm of of study within the yoga tradition. And the, and the paradigm of study is what's called swadhyaya or spiritual self-inquiry. And the tool of asana is part of this, this tool of self, spiritual self-inquiry to know yourself, to know the body, to know the sensations in the body, to bring your mind into full, what you could call embodiment so that consciousness arrives not only into the physical body. The physical body is relatively easy to get the consciousness in. Sure, hamstring is tight. So the first thing yoga asana does is make you realize my hamstring is tight. How many people have realized this from the yoga practice? I've definitely realized. My first, think about your first yoga class. Unless you were doing some other physical activity before yoga, you probably your hamstring was tight. I could not touch my toes in my first, my first yoga asana practice. People have a hard time believing it, but I really absolutely could not touch my toes. It was impossible. I sat in Pashimatanasana, and in this forward fold, I was maybe three, four inches away from making contact with my big toe, you know? And I thought, I'm doing something very wrong with my life at this point. I'm 19 years old, and I'm already stiff. Um, and then, you know, you keep practicing, and things change. So when we think about asana, the idea is that the tool of asana brings your mind into the body. And we begin to feel first hamstring, you know, quadricep, burning muscle here, burning muscle there, this joint here, this joint there. Sure, sure. This is good. We should feel all of that. And 
even beyond the physical body, there is more to feel. There is what you could call the subtle body, the body of energy, the space between the molecules of the body, the emptiness of the inner body, these more subtle aspects of vibration and energy, which are very difficult to define and which you cannot dissect the physical body and find. So if we understand asana, it's to bring embodiment and consciousness into the full totality of the space that we inhabit, which includes the physical body, the access point, and then the body of energy or the subtle body, which includes emotions, vibrations, and the flow of energy or prana in the body. So this is one tool of asana. If that tool of asana is going to lead you deeper, then the mind also has to expand. And as the mind expands, then we open up the possibility to engage in the more subtle aspects of the practice like meditation, like breath work, and also the study of the sacred texts. If we've been practicing yoga for more than five years and we've never picked up one of the sacred texts at this point, it is highly recommended that with the guidance of a teacher that you can take some look at some of the basic texts or the foundational texts of the yoga practice. For those of you who are teaching and haven't spent the time to look at these sacred texts, then this is highly recommended to, under the guidance of a teacher, take a look at some of these foundational texts, even if you don't intend on going too deeply in the, into them, to know that they're there, to try to look and glean what is the teaching that's contained within these texts. This is part of this tradition of yoga. So do you think yoga is for everyone? No, you know, just like climbing Mount Everest, it's not for everyone. But who is yoga for? Every single student who answers the call to say yoga is for me, then that student, if that's you, then you answer the call, then that answer comes with a responsibility. Because if you show up to the practice, if you show up, you're there, you're in the tradition. Now it's your responsibility. It's on your shoulders. If you answer the call, I'm going to be a teacher. Then we have, there's this phrase in the um, mantra that my, that my teacher used to say after the opening prayer. It's a very long one. I'm not going to bore you with it. But the beginning of it is, um, uh, oh, that's the wrong one. It's coming to my mind. Namo Brahmadibya Brahmavidya Sampradaya Karatrubyo. Namaste to Brahmin. Namaste to the keepers of the way of the knowledge of Brahmin. So this is the idea that we're giving thanks. So namaste is greetings and salutations. Namaste to Brahmin. Namaste to the grand cosmic oneness or how you want to call God, up to you, okay? So namaste to that one true universal uh, being. Namaste to uh, the keepers of the way. The keepers of the way. So those who tend the sacred paths. Those who are going to keep this knowledge. Those who are going to maintain the purity and integrity of the map, keepers of the way of the knowledge of how to know Brahman or to know the truth, the deepest truth of life. So this is the mantra my teacher used to say, to give thanks to those who came before him. The idea is that now they're gone, who's left? I felt a big shift in the generation of yoga. So why I say I think we're in this new phase of the knowledge of yoga. I felt a big shift when Patabi Joyce died when BKS Iyengar died, when Krishnamacharya died. 
you have this old generation of teachers who were born before independence in India, who experienced a different world, who were born before, you know, um, what we could what we could say, you know, modern civilization, like, you know, invaded and internet uh, existed and mobile phones took over the world. And we had this generation of teachers who had uh, the foundation of a life in the times of old. You know, if you look at the story of how Krishnamacharya came to the teachings of yoga, it wasn't, you know, from a YouTube video. You know what I mean? Okay. So we have the idea that there was a storied and honored path of moving away from the material elements of society to pursue the liberation of human consciousness. And those few individuals who took that call as a diversion from society went into the wilderness to find the teachers, to find the forest-dwelling yogis or yogis in the cave, which Krishnamacharya went on this grand search to answer a legend about uh, how he could find the path to meet one of his teachers, the most influential of his teachers. So he went on that journey, and Patabi Joyce met, found Krishnamacharya because Krishnamacharya was doing a yoga demonstration and then ran away from his home to study yoga, you know, at a very, very young age. And he was, you know, just 12 or 13 years old, something like this. So we think about that. This, this generation of, of teachers are gone. They're all gone. Whatever knowledge they had, they passed it on to those students who were there, and now they're not here anymore. Whatever kernels of wisdom that they had, whatever light has been shed on the path has been shed. They are here no longer. We cannot go back and ask them that other question. Hey, what about this? Hey, what about that? Should I study this Upanishad or that Upanishad? Was that relevant? Should I have studied the Yoga Sutras more? Should I have read the Gita more? Yes, those texts are there, but the idea is that the texts themselves are inert without what's called the sacred transmission. You know, if you ever read some book and then felt like this is, I don't understand. Or maybe in our contemporary age, maybe you watched some weird movie, you know, and you thought this was weird. And then you talk to somebody who was like an expert in cinema. And they said, oh, actually, in this movie, you can see the play of light and dark. And then this happens. And then there's an interesting cinematic experience. So they opened your eyes to some new way of viewing that movie. And then you watch the movie again. You thought, I see. You opened my eyes. I didn't see. I thought it was just three hours of boring, you know, but now I see. Okay. So, you know, we can think about that. Wow. I really, okay. I appreciate this now. The guru is not someone who is, has absolute truth, but it's someone who can open your eyes to some new truth. That truth you cannot see for yourself. So whatever opening, whatever light those gurus of the past had within them, now that light has been shed. Now we have what the remnants of this, almost like the embers of the dawn or the embers of the sunset that have passed. And with the promise of a new dawn, but that day which has passed is gone forever. So we not get that back. We don't get that back, right? The idea is that now there's, there's something new. There's something new that's coming. At the same time, we have to remember that this knowledge is very, very sacred, that this is very, very precious. And it requires a commitment to stay on the path and to practice. It's not for everyone. And that's important. But we should do everything within our power 
to make any student and every student, no matter what their physical ability, no matter what their financial means are, no matter their age, their race, their religion, any student who says, I want to practice yoga, it is the responsibility of every teacher to meet that student where they are and make the practice accessible for them. But if we say yoga is for everyone, we can start compromising the spiritual integrity of the practice. Oh, yoga is for everyone. Oh, well, you know, I don't like this oming business. Can we just remove the om and this opening prayer thing? I don't like it. We delete it. So, so now suddenly we need to delete that because we need to make yoga for everyone. Oh, no, no, no. Now we lost the meaning of yoga. Someone says, I want to do yoga, but I just want to call it stretching. So can we just stretch? No, go and stretch then. You want to do yoga, something else. Go and stretch. Fine. Do what you want. Stretch. Feels good stretching. Make a class called stretching. Go and do that. No problem. Take stretching in the afternoon. Two to four. No problem. Right? This is not a problem. We can do this. You want to do strength training? Go do strength training also from two to four. This is not a problem. Is this yoga? No. Right? Suddenly we remove. Let's remove all uh, references to all of these Teachers who are problematic in the past, let's delete them all and just start now and everybody just is their own teacher. Oh no, this is also not yoga. What, we delete the whole past? This is a disrespect to everyone who's come before us. We can't delete the ancestors. They're, you know, human beings that made lots of mistakes. We're human beings. We should not be so egotistical or narcissistic to think that we have not made many mistakes ourselves, right? A hundred years from now, somebody's going to look at our life and be like, oh, Look at them. Look what they did. Can you believe it? They did this and this and this and this and this. Oh, no, no, no. Bad person. Let's delete them. So we will be deleted by the next generation. But the knowledge of yoga cannot be deleted. And we have to remember this person, however flawed they were, they woke up in the morning, they chanted whole Gita, they did some asana practice, and then they taught after. This person, however flawed they were, woke up in the morning, chanted whole yoga sutras, did some pranayama, did some asanas, taught some students who were there. Krishnamacharya, until he died, taught in a very personal and intimate way. There's a wonderful book called Krishnamacharya, His Life and Teaching, which I really recommend everyone to read. If you have not read it, it's a really, really wonderful testament to the hard work of the generation of teachers that have come before us. So when we think about, do we need to make yoga for everyone? Should we put yoga in every gym? Should we put yoga here or there or here or there? I don't know if the answer to that is yes, to be honest with you. It's like that classic saying, should you give your pearls to the pigs? You know? No, I don't think so. What's the pig going to do with the pearls? Going to eat it. Then what? Then it's pig poop. You know? That's not cool for pearls. You know? So what are you going to do with the pearl? You have to wait. Also, pearl is interesting analogies. What do you do? You also cannot keep the pearl in the closet. You know what happens to pearls in the closet? They lose their luster. So you feed the pearl, meaning the pearl is the sacred knowledge of the yoga. You feed it to the pig, that one who says, I just want to be cool, remove the om. I just want to stretch and do strength training, forget all of this demanding. I don't want to do breathing. I don't want to do bandha. I don't want to do chanting. Just remove all of this, make easy for me. Then, you know, just an analogy. The person still has value, okay? <laughs> like I'm not saying this person, just an analogy. So then if we give that person the, the, the pearl, then they just eat it up and destroy it. Also, you don't use that pearl. You say, oh, you know, I'm going to protect this knowledge and keep it and give it to no one. Then you keep that pearl in your closet. The pearl, if you do that, the actual pearl loses its luster. It loses its shine. It dies. So to keep the pearl alive, we have to wear it. We have to use it. We have to give it to that person who is going to apply it 
and use it every day of their life, then that person, yoga is for them. Give them the pearl. Let them take care of it. You have the pearl as a teacher. Don't keep it for yourself. I know some teachers, they don't want to give their knowledge. If the student is there, you give them everything that you have. If they're there like a sponge, willing to soak it all up, in my opinion, you give them everything. You don't hold anything back because you don't know if tomorrow you're gone. You don't know if that was the chance to pass it on to the next generation. And then, then what? Life is gone in one moment. You know, we can't, we think we're going to live another 50, 100,000 years, but life is short. You know, we never know when that last breath comes. So if yoga is for you, whether you're on the path of the teacher, whether you're on the path of the student, remember that you answer that question. If the answer to that question is yes, you are a spiritual seeker. You are there to utilize the tools of yoga on this ancient quest of spiritual liberation. And it is no small task. And it is a matter of responsibility. So receive the pearl and work with it in your life to the best of your ability. And when it comes time to pass that pearl on to the student who demonstrates their worthiness, pass everything on, give it away. You don't lose anything because the teaching of yoga was never yours to begin with. It's not mine. It's not my teacher's. It's not yours. It belongs to, well, it belongs to God, really, you could say. It belongs to the universe from the source from which it emanated forth from. So this is, this is something I think is very relevant to think about uh, and how we sit within the tradition of yoga. So that was my talk. That's what I wanted to say. We still have time for some questions. So maybe uh, people have been typing furiously at home. So Beatrice, are there any questions from, from home that you see? <laughs> yeah so let's just let's talk about that for a moment so there is a quote from the hatha yoga pradipika that my yoga my yoga teacher patabi joyce used to say as the answer to the question is yoga for me so there's a line in the hatha yoga pradipika which says i can't remember the sanskrit so i'm the bad student you know i'm glad it's written down um, so the english translation is yoga is for Old person, young person, fat person, skinny person, man person, woman person, rich person, poor person, old person, young person, all people who show up to the practice except for the lazy person. Why? With the lazy person, they say, oh no, I don't want to get up in the morning. Oh, it's too early for me. Oh, I don't want to jump back. Too many jump back. I'm just going to sit here instead. Oh, I can't do. Oh, I don't want to chant the yoga sutras. It's so boring. So boring. Let me do something else. So this is from, again, we look at this 500-year-old uh, text of the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, and then we understand that this is a human condition. It's not like suddenly now we're all lazy and bad because we have Netflix and, you know, Facebook. It's not their fault, right? We have always been lazy as human beings. We have this quality that at any moment we can revert to this notion of kind of laziness and apathy. That's a proclivity within all human beings, myself included. And the yogi says, I'm willing to watch that. I'm willing to not be the lazy person. I'm willing to, on the days when I feel like I just want to sleep and forget about it, I'm willing to push myself a little and understand that it's bigger than, you know, my problems, that this is something special. So I'm going to get up and practice, even if it's only for five minutes. And even if I'm injured and sore and miserable, I'm going to do something so I can keep that light little shining on the path. You know, they say that um, 
<clears throat> the idea of light in the spark is very difficult. So we have this analogy of lighting the spark, right? How do you start a fire? Anybody ever tried to start a fire without the wonderful tool of a lighter? Anybody tried that? How'd it go? Not so good. You know, it's a little bit like, wow, this was, think about human civilization 10,000 or 20,000 years ago. And you want a fire? You get the two sticks and you just sit there. You ever tried that? I mean, it's like, it's like a heroic effort. If you think about it. And uh, I'd be, I'd be faster to wait for lightning to strike, you know? So we have the idea of tending the fire because the idea is that that spark is hard to get. So if we have the spark of the fire and we keep it lit, then we don't need to go through this period of how do I get the spark lit again and try to put those two sticks together and find that motivation within ourselves. The guru is presented, Ajnana Timirandasya. That guru is the one who can, like a spark of lightning, bring up the fire within yourself to shine light in the darkness. But more specifically, to light the fire within you so that you yourself begin to have that uh, fire burning within. And as soon as the fire is burning within, then 100% you're no longer the lazy person because the fire is uncomfortable. So we become motivated to get up and do the practice. We become motivated. Oh, I feel so uncomfortable when I don't practice because now this fire is burning within me. How many of you feel a little uncomfortable on the days that you don't practice? You know, I feel like, hmm, I haven't practiced today. I'm being very good because it's a moon day, but I don't like it. <laughs> I, I would rather practice, but today my practice is not practicing. Right? Or we have the one day off each week, which was like one day off. And then we think, what shall I do? What shall I do? What shall I do? Shall I do something else? Maybe I do, maybe I'll do a long hike just to do something today. You know, I try to do something, something, something. I'm going to do meditation for four hours, right? Just something intense to try to deal with that spark, the fire, which begins to be uncomfortable because it's meant to be utilized on that practice. Right? So it's good. That's good. Any questions from anyone here? Sure. So after the So that uh, that that whole actually it's part that the first refrain is one of the refrains of what's called the Guru Stotram, and it's a you know a, a chant in honor of the gurus. So there's like I don't know like like twelve different refrains. So there's many more of them. So it's just the next one. We can do more, but you know, yeah. places to go, people to see, food to eat, you know. <laughs> I think it's like 12 more refrains. So they're all in Tasmai Shri Gurave Noha. So uh, I like Jayashri, my chanting teacher. She has them on her, uh, her course uh, and on her CD. And even you can just put it on the internet and then it comes up. So there's some wonderful things about the internet. You put Guru Stotram. And then suddenly there's like a, a dude there from India going, you know, Tasmai Shri Gurave Noha. It's pretty cool. Um, before, what do we have to do to find out the Guru Stotram? Oh, I heard this chant. Where does it come from? Seek out some teacher, find a cave, you know, hope someone's in it. You know what I mean? Hi, do you know the Guru Stotram? Oh, sorry, it's not my lineage. Oh, I better find another cave. Oh, try to find the Guru Stotram cave, you know. <laughs> Easier. But it's a beautiful, beautiful. Uh, there's a few of these Guru chants which are really beautiful. This one, Guru, the Guru Stotram, for me, I feel a, a very powerful um, connection to it. It's the idea of, you know, like, I bought on, I, th I, th I thank you, like, essentially a big thank you, you know, to the teachers. So uh, the other, the another one is um, uh, the Guru Ashtakam, which is Tata Kim, Tata Kim. It ends like this. So Guru Rangni, 
something, tata kim, tata kim. So this is uh, essentially asking, without the teaching of the guru, what then, what then? You know, what then, what then? Then, again, we're back on our own with the two sticks trying to light our own path. Like, oh, I'm going to get the fire, I'm going to light the path. <laughs> you know, like fumbling in the darkness without the, you know, without the, the, without a torch, trying to find some spark of light, you know. And then, what then? What then? Well, I'm lost. Lost in what? I'm lost in samsara, hala, hala, the poison of conditioned existence. So the idea is that then we need, we need the antidote. So we need the, the light to dispel the darkness. We need the light to shine out in the darkness. And it's interesting because even though we have this idea of light and shadow, the duality isn't necessarily as, um, you know, uh, black and white as we might want to make it. The idea is almost as though that the light is in that war with the darkness. It's just that when the darkness is there, we don't have the presence of illumination. So it's in the darkness that we are confused. So the darkness itself doesn't have the quality of bad, but the idea is that the light is not in a war with darkness. It's just merely that in the presence of light, we can see more clearly. So we can step onto the path. We can know the impact of our actions rather than just you know, operating in kind of a sphere of delusion. So it's not like a war that we're in. It's not like the light is out there attacking the darkness. And just like when you walk into a room, you turn on the light and automatically everything in the room is revealed. And the same thing with the path. It's not that the, you know, it's not that the light again is out there in search of the darkness in this kind of, you know, grand cosmic war. But the idea is that when darkness is present, we simply don't know what lies ahead and we can easily get lost. Long oh, a long question. Yeah. Nice. What does it mean to practice yoga every day? Does it mean two hours of ashtanga every day? Or it means any training <laughs> or meditation? Just mm -hmm. a few facilitations? So what does it mean to practice yoga every day? Uh, we can even take the question deeper than that. What does it mean to practice yoga every moment of every day? Because definitely everyone agrees you cannot do asana all day. You agree? Okay. Yes. Maybe okay. When you're, if it's a moment when if someone started yoga with a lot of enthusiasm and they're very young for a year or two, maybe they could do asana all day with some breaks for food or something. Right. So you're, but then that goes away. Then you become... Even just 20 years old, you cannot do asana all day. You know, then at some moment, please, let me just lie here, right? So how do you practice yoga every moment of every day if you can't do asana all day? Then you have to answer the question, what is yoga? We have already talked about asana is a tool on the path of yoga, but asana is not yoga. This is important. Asana is not yoga. Asana is a tool on the path of yoga. So what is yoga? Yoga is the path of the knowledge of the truth, right? The truth of what? The eternal truth of what we could call purusha, right? The spirit, what we could call Brahman, what we could call, you know, uh, what lies underneath the stillness of the mind for you to experience. Mm -hmm. So what tools lead you to that? Do that every day. I don't do asana every day. I do asana six days a week, five days a week, if the moon day or travel day or something like this. But uh, I keep a continuity of asana as close to six days a week as possible. What that looks like for me, you know, is anything from sun salutations and standing poses to some of the advanced series. It just depends on what's possible related to time and 
um, anything else, any other factors that might be present. So other days, for example, on the days of the new moon, the full moon, and the days of rest, I still consider myself that I've stepped onto the path. I have a meditation practice that I do consistently every day, morning and evening. And so to answer that question, what is your tapas that you perform every day? And tapas is the notion of some discipline of the mind and the body that helps tend that fire of light on the path of yoga. So you have to answer that question for yourself. So practicing every day might look like meditation every day. Practicing every day might look like pranayama every day. Practicing every day might look like intensive contemplative prayer or chanting every day. Practice might look like asana, plus a little bit of all of the other stuff every day. Or not, you know, you could find some, some, some version that keeps you on the path of that larger tradition of yoga. And so this is a question to ask, right? Now the follow-up to that is, you can't do chanting all day. Even your voice will get tired and then suddenly you can't speak anymore. You know, then you can't do meditation all day because you have to talk to other human beings. You know, they're there. Sooner or later, you have to talk to them. They exist. So many of them on the planet, you can't avoid them. Even if you think, I'm going to go in the cave, then somebody comes into the cave. Hello, do you know the Guru Stotram? You know, and you're like, no, go away. I'm trying to be alone. I don't want to know more people. But so many people on the planet, we can't escape the people. So you can't do meditation all day. You can't do chanting all day. You can't do pranayama all day, even though we're breathing all day. You can't do asana all day. But the yoga sutras of Patanjali say we must practice nairantardiya without break. Without break does not mean just get on the mat once a day. Without break means you have to be practicing your yoga as a spiritual path in every breath, in every moment of your life. What does that look like, right? That's more difficult. How do we think about that? When we're talking to someone, how do we keep ourselves aligned on the spiritual path, right? And so sometimes this is presented as keeping, an, keeping a root within your intention to stay on the path in every human interaction. And sometimes this is presented as keeping awareness of your breath your body, and your mind in quiet self-reflection in every moment of your life so that you're not just caught up in reactivity, you know? Because without that self-reflection, suddenly that temptation to get caught or drawn in to drama is always there in the human world, you know, it's always there. Our old triggers, our old patterns, they're always there waiting at any moment. So we're constantly needing to keep that sort of root back on the path. So I invite you to think about that as the notion of practicing every day, the notion of practicing every moment of every day to keep a, a root into uh, your reactions, the level of reactivity, the feeling in the body, the emotions that are present, the quality of your breath moment by moment so that we can carry that notion of spiritual self-reflection into every moment of our life. So I think that's harder than trying to put your leg behind your head personally, you know? Putting the leg behind the head may or may not be a success, but it's somewhat entertaining. You know, thinking about how am I reacting emotionally in this moment? And can I be present with my breath and the feeling in my body in this difficult moment of my life is way harder. I'd rather just take a pause and be like, I'll be right back. I'm going to put my leg behind my head. I'll come back. It's much more entertaining. What is a good yoga Oh, what is a good, good question. What is a good Yoga Sutra book to begin with? Well, I think a beginner Yoga Sutra book is the Yoga Sutra translation by Swami Sachitananda. Um, and what I like about Swami Sachitananda's translation, first of all, it's very friendly, extremely friendly translation. Not, it's not the academic translation, very friendly translation. 
he is a he he was you know, another teacher that's no longer with us. He was a guru, you know. He was someone who had the light within him, and in that book, you really get his teaching, which I think is very special. Number two, what's cool about Swami Satyananda's translation is it's translated into many languages. So sometimes people end up reading, studying the Sanskrit or reading the Yoga Sutras, then they have to have double language course. So if English is not your native language and you don't have like a high level of English reading, then you start reading Yoga Sutras in English, then suddenly we're reading Sanskrit to English to another language. This is too much, right? So it's really nice to have Sanskrit to the language you speak the best. Yes? So it's very important. You don't want to have two steps removed from the knowledge. So I like Swami Satyananda's uh, Yoga Sutra book, translated into so many languages. Even I think translated into Asian languages. We think you even get Japanese and Chinese and maybe even Thai, you know, many, many languages. Definitely all of the European languages and the, you know, um, so there's many languages. I recommend that one to start. There's other ones if you want to go deeper, but that's the one I recommend everyone to start with. Any other questions from anybody here? We're good. Where are the donuts? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you put it in the chat? Someone put it in the chat? Oh, someone put it in the chat. That's nice. Any other questions? All right. We're just going to go practice. Okay. If there are no other questions, I'll let you out early. Then I think, I don't think there are donuts, but I, I heard there are empanadas. So I went with the healthier version. So the reason for everyone at home, if you don't know, I mean, maybe, maybe many of you have taken the class with my husband. Tim loves to talk about donuts. He always talked about donuts. This is like, I don't know uh, how he became so obsessed with donuts. I, I don't think I've ever seen a donut in Denmark. Um, I think they like just got bagels over there. I don't know. You know, like uh, we saw a bagel place and it says like American style bagel. Now I'm sure we're going to go back and be like giant American donut. So he talks about donuts all the time and like as the epitome of the temptation to go off of the path. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> He brought donuts home the other night, too. Apparently, there's a good donut place nearby. <laughs> so uh, don't, don't bring me any donuts. It's not my thing. Uh, please bring a Tim donut. Don't buy, uh, it's not really my thing. I like pineapples. Um, good. So uh, thank you very much, everyone, for joining. Uh, we, uh, I don't, Beatrice, none of the other classes are online today, right? No, okay. So sorry, everyone, but we have a lot of classes here that are happening today, but they're not online. We're here in our new space in Miami, so please come and visit us sometime over here. And thank you, everyone, for doing the practice this morning. I think we're going to continue to do the Saturdays as a, like a hybrid. Is that happening from now onward? So from now onward, the Saturdays are going to continue to be the hybrid where you can come practice in here, probably downstairs, but maybe upstairs. I don't know. We have to see. And then uh, we hope to see you on the Saturdays. And I think I'll be back in December for another one. And uh, that is going to, in December, the December 4th is our official grand opening. So here we're just like open house. We're getting the energy going. And then December 4th, we're going to um, probably have donuts. <laughs> for the grand opening. Okay. <laughs> Good. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at 
www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.